And we welcome you to the morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. As we all hunker down through this COVID-19 crisis, I am also looking through the morning show archives and digging up some memorable interviews from the past that I thought might be interesting to listen to again. Today's interview, which was originally recorded back in 2008, takes a somewhat lighthearted look at the fascinating world of self-help. Enjoy. I have had so much fun reading a new book called Helping Me Help Myself, One Skeptic, Ten Self-Help Gurus, and a Year on the Brink of the Comfort Zone. The author is Beth Lissick, and perhaps you know her from the New York Times bestseller, Everybody Into the Pool. She is a very, very uh, gifted writer, and perhaps you know her contributions to uh, public radio's This American Life. And uh, this book is such fun, and there's a little bit of seriousness snuck in uh, as well, as Beth Lissick explores some uh, interesting facets of this increasingly pervasive world of self-help, which seems to have uh, the American public in kind of an ironclad grip. And uh, much of what is in these pages is also hilariously funny. And I'm uh, really happy to uh, have these next few minutes to spend with Beth Lissick talking about her new book, Helping Me Help Myself, published by William Morrow. Beth Lissick, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you uh, joining us. I should mention that I had the chance to speak with the author of a book, which you mentioned at one point in your book, that would be Steve Salerno and his book, Sham, which oh, is a very interesting book, uh, which takes a really hard-hitting, very, very critical look at this whole self-help movement. It's interesting now to approach it uh, from your perspective, in a sense, a little more uh, lightheartedly. A little more forgiving, I think. You know, I really enjoyed Steve's book, and I felt like because that book was out there, and he's the kind of journalist he is, that it really, it really did make me feel better at my, about my approach, knowing that I could go about it my own way, because it's an easy topic to make fun of. There are a lot of, you know, his whole thing is, you know, self-help and actualization movement. That is an acronym. Sham is an acronym for that, and and that there's a lot of scam artists out there. And I think that that at this point, we all know that there's a lot of people out there trying to sell things, trying to sell dreams and ideas of of being better, but. I thought for me, well, you know, millions and millions of people are doing this, so why don't I just try to do it, actually, and, and see what's there and see what kind of comes out in the wash. So, so I really appreciated Steve's take on it, but I felt also relieved that he was the serious journalist who could do it that way and, and that I could approach it a different way. Right. This uh, odyssey kicks off right around New Year's, right about the time that a fair number of people put together New Year's resolutions. I guess what you did uh, was was this. You asked, what if I could just look at everything in my life that was bugging me, everything I wanted to make better, and systematically fix it all? And of course, you're not really seriously imagining that to be possible, but you're, you're intrigued by the possibility of the pursuit of that. Yeah, I know, you know, I had never made a New Year's resolution before. I had never read a self-help book before. And so as I started looking at, well, you know, it's another year I've got the same old issues and same old problems. Not that anything was horribly wrong with my life. And I think that's another aspect of it, too, is that when I was a kid growing up, I'm almost 40 now, and when I was a kid growing up, the, the self-help book was, I'm okay, you're okay. And so if you were okay, then what was the problem, you know? But now I think that, that it's it's marketed and geared toward be, becoming this ultimate you. 
So I thought, well, I mean, there are definitely a lot of things in my life that could use some improvement. So why don't I just try to look at them all? And, and in a systematic way, month by month, I'll take something, uh, personal finance, and I'll read the Susie Orman book, and I'll go see Susie, or I'll read the, you know, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus for My Relationship Month, and I'll go see John Gray, or... Uh, Deepak Chopra for the Spirituality Month. And so I really did try to just pick these things and dive in and, and you know, and see if what I could get and without, without taking these people too much to task for all the cheesiness and all that, which is kind of a given. There's, there's this showmanship to it that, that is fun to write about, but at the same time, I didn't want to make fun of them. I feel like it's, it's I don't know, it's kind of too easy a target. Hmm. I want to talk to you for you a moment about the level of skepticism which you had going into this, and and especially something you say in the introduction. You say, I was aware that there was a slice of my skepticism that was pure immaturity. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, when I grew up also, I felt like I was hanging on to this really adolescent kind of teenagery idea that, you know, my friends and I would see somebody like Tony Robbins on TV saying, make your life a masterpiece. You are the painter. What kind of portrait would you paint? You know, and, and, and thinking, God, is he for real? And so I think that the, the cheesiness and the slickness of it all, um, I, my reaction to that was kind of just a knee-jerk, oh, my God, I've got to run the other direction. And so as a writer and a person who likes to explore such things that make me uncomfortable, I thought, well, there's a reason there's, there's probably a good reason that I should go and dive into this if it makes me that uncomfortable. And, and part of it did seem to me like I was just holding on to some kind of adolescent ideas, and it wasn't really getting me anywhere as far as making more money or, or, or anything like that. I thought, well, maybe if I buy into it, maybe I can, I can sort of have that dream too. I want to read a portion of the book where you are in that first month and, and still grappling with where this is going to begin, okay. and you're walking into a bookstore. So... You say, here I am walking down the self-help aisle on purpose for the first time in my life. It makes my insides feel bad. And I don't think it's just my digestive system kicking back into gear. The problem is that instead of thinking that all those smiling faces and soothing colors and jacked-up titles are trying to help me, I feel like a bigger loser. Weak and cliched. <laughs> I think that's really interesting. And I suppose, I mean, we don't, we don't stop to think about what it what it must feel like for someone who is sort of dipping their toe in these particular waters for the first time. I yeah, mean, I, I know. I think that a lot of people, you know, since I've written the book in the past few weeks that it's been out, it's been interesting because people will tell me, oh, well, you know, I read this self-help book and I've tried this thing. But it's kind of a thing that, that people feel a little embarrassed about and, and don't like to share. And, and that's fascinating to me, too, that when you see people in the self-help or self-improvement aisle, a lot of times people look a little sheepish when they're look, you know, searching out their title. And, and, um, and I thought that was fascinating because it is such a huge industry. And why is it this, this thing that we don't really talk about and yet we buy you know, by the truckload? So um, I, I think that when I was reading uh, Jack Canfield's book, The First Month, the, the Success Principles, How to Get from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be, and he says, you know, this book is for all of you who've decided to take the, the road less traveled and, you know, who are stepping outside of the dominant paradigm. And, and I thought, God, that's me. That's what I'm trying to do. And then I thought, oh, no, this, this kind of language, this whole thing is exactly what I thought the, the dominant paradigm was, you know. And, and so, so I had a lot of issues with sort of what, what that did to my individuality to be buying into this. Mm. And that plays 
right against something else, which is that you realized very early on that with with any of these, you have to be committed. You have to believe. And of course, your ability to commit to these things and believe in them was in a sense at odds with that sort of uh, subconscious fear of getting swallowed up by something bigger than you. Yeah, exactly. And I, the whole book, I go in and out of it, the whole book. And it's funny because in the very beginning, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to dive in, and then my, my skepticism would creep back in, and I would pull back, and then I would say, no, it's time to do my visualization exercises. I'm going to sit here and try to do this. And I would, you know, be sitting by myself, visualizing, you know, what I wanted, and I would think, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm really doing this, but if it's, you know, they are things that I want to happen, so I'm going to try and, and do that. And, and I think that it was a problem that I had the, the whole year that I never completely overcame, yet, you know, in the end... I did end up improving some very concrete things, having Oprah's home organizing lady help me organize my house, and that was great, you know, and, and I got tips from Susie Orman, and that was great, and, and did kind of get into this, this kind of larger sense about what it is to be a, be a citizen of the world and be a person and try to be a little bit more thoughtful about what it is that I do with my life, and all these people talk about your life purpose and your mission statement, and... I actually did get something out of it. Mm. Well, and and this idea of being willing to buy into something fully, the way you put it at one point, which really made me chuckle, is, is there a way to participate in this world without sounding like you're a zombie drinking the Kool-Aid? Right, right. And, you know, a lot of times, as I sat in a Franklin Covey seminar in Chicago trying to write my personal mission statement alongside a hundred other people, I I really did feel like, God, this isn't my language, this isn't my, I feel so out of place in in this setting, and how how are we all doing, how are people doing this? And it did feel very at odds with with who who I am as a person to be be doing this, and and using that language did almost feel like I was drinking the Kool-Aid, like, how how am I? <laughs> how is my hand writing these words down? It feels strange. Hmm. Well, and I'm thinking of when you went to uh, one seminar that uh, that right off the bat was kind of at odds with who you are at this point in your life uh, because it had certain religious overtones with which you specifically aren't all that comfortable in describing that specifically. But I think it it relates to a lot of these experiences through the whole year. You said, the intersection of my sincerity, curiosity, revulsion, and sheer desire to actually improve my life is a difficult one to navigate, let alone to explain to a stranger. <laughs> so, and of course, you're talking there about just kind of talking about it in conversation, but, but in a sense, the book itself is, is, embodies that challenge. Yeah, it really does. I think that what I'm, I've discovered also about myself is that it's very easy to be cynical about things if you don't know what they're completely about. You know, if you, if you buy into these things, there's a certain idea that you're naive. And, and so I think in a way my, my cynicism was holding me back because I thought, well, I can't, it's hard for me to just, yeah, pull up a bar stool next to some person and try to tell them about what my project is because I sound a little naive and goofy. Oh, I'm going to improve my life by following the advice of America's best-known self-help gurus. And, and so there's a part of it that sounds like a joke and, and part of it where I was sincere. And, and I think that that, that line, that, that murky area, was really interesting for me to explore as a, as a writer and also as a person trying to get some stuff together in, in my life. Hmm. 
Let me ask you about a, 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 a very actually serious moment in the book, which I think is really um, intriguing. Um, it's while you're watching the Chicago Cubs game, I think, and you are thinking about uh, your grandfather, uh, who went by the name of Cubby, and he was a coal miner. And as you are thinking about him at this moment in the book, maybe you can tell our listeners a little more about what, what prompted you to think of him. You said, a sense of despair mounts as I think about the very real work he did versus this personal growth work, in quotation marks, I am paying over $1,000 to do. It seems like the curse of a certain class having the free time and energy to devote to your emotional bank account. That's right. really interesting. I mean, it, and I had not really stopped to think about that, that, that for people of a certain economic status, and not that uh, at the time you wrote this book you were anything close to wealthy, but nonetheless you were in a time and in a place and uh, at a certain place in life, status in life, where it was possible for you to undertake this. And, of course, lots of people have money to burn and sort of do this at the drop of a hat versus somebody like your grandfather. What time did he have in his life to stop and ponder these sorts of things? I mean, it's a very striking contrast. Yeah, it, it is interesting also and shows kind of the difference how far that this this self, self-help movement has gone in that people now, I think people used to be more concerned. I mean, they had to work, they had their families, and they had their church uh, for the most part. And, and that was, you know, that was where they got their sense of who they were. And so this idea, just thinking of my, my grandfather, I was in Illinois, and I was at the Cubs, Game and everybody's chanting, let's go Cubbies. And I, and I thought of my grandfather, Cubby, who got his nickname because he, when he would pull off his goggles in the coal mine, he had these big white circles around his eyes. And um, he, um, you know, it, it seemed absurd to me doing what I was doing in that moment, thinking of him and how hard he worked in his life. And, and that, you know, all this talk that people um, were going on about it the, at the, the seminar was all about work and personal growth work. And I thought, you know, well, he was actually doing real work. And I, I think that there, there is some kind of replacement going on that people don't have that such a sense of, of self as they used to. And they've got more free time and there's more focus on, on your personal growth in, in the concepts that before, I think, even though, you know, these are ideas that Benjamin Franklin wrote about and Emerson wrote about, um, the way that they are now packaged and marketed is a, a c- complete uh, change from, from how things used to be in, in his day. Hmm. Some of this search over the course of the year was very much for you. I mean, you losing weight or you getting organized. And then other pursuits through the year uh, intersected with others in your life. I mean, uh, such as the the time when you really undertook to to improve as a parent, or uh, when you explored the writings of of John Gray, the Venus Mars thing, in an effort perhaps to uh, improve or or revitalize your marriage. How did that feel when this started to sort of intersect with with others in your immediate sphere on, on that kind of very direct level? You know, that's an interesting question because there, it goes back to that idea of having to bring somebody on board and explain to them what it is that I'm trying to do and, and hoping that they'll go along with me. You know, in, in the case of, at least in the case of the, the parenting and the discipline, my son was 
only four, so he didn't really have a say in it. But, you know, I had to get my husband on board with me to say, okay, we're going to try this thing. It's called One, Two, Three Magic, and it's going to be our new discipline program. And um, there's, there's, something, there's something that is, uh, that's uncomfortable there, too, about having to kind of put the, the trust and the, the faith in somebody else that they're going to stick with you on this thing that you don't even know if it's going to work. You, know? and, and, and that's you don't know what this thing is, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here we go. You know, come with me. And, and that, was, that was an interesting one. And, the, um, and then the relationship one didn't end up really working. And I just think that that... That book, out of all the things I did that year, that book really didn't resonate with me, and I didn't. I found the ideas kind of outdated and sexist, and and that they weren't. They seemed like these kind of quick fix, like you know, your wife really wants you to listen to her, so remember to nod and say mm-hmm, uh-huh when she's when she's talking, and you know things like that that felt kind of insulting, and so that that month you know, did end up being a little bit of a wash because I, I didn't get that much out of that book. Hmm. Um, Although, you know, it's interesting. I One of the things I liked about your, your book overall, and, is, and, and, and this chapter in this way especially, is that even as you ultimately came to not be <laughs> much of a fan of John Gray and his books and what he was doing, it's not just this sort of cavalier dismissal, this, this derisive dismissal of him out of hand. You know, you've actually taken the time to, to, to read his stuff and to experience him in person, and, and you've really thought about it and then sort of told us why ultimately it didn't feel all that great to you. But, but it isn't this sort of black and white cold reaction to it that we so often get. I mean... Yeah, that, well, you know, and that was interesting about Steve Salerno's book, going back to that, because he really takes John Gray to task for his credentials, and, and I think, well, all right, but you know what? This guy has helped a lot of people, and, and you know, there is something there that is resonating with a lot of people, and so to just say, oh, he went to a, this diploma mill, and he doesn't know what he's talking about, and he, you know, I just thought, well, in a way, he does know what he's talking about, because people are, people are getting something from it, and so I, I felt like it was just too easy to kind of, to tear him down like that, and, you know, Steve did a pretty good job in his book, so, so it was kind of left me, left me open there to, to really try and do it without taking the easy, the easy route. Well, and in, and in going through that, you end up, in a sense, understanding your own marriage better. You end the chapter by saying, We've been together for nearly 10 years now, so maybe this is our flow. Not so much a flow of gentle streams as the adventures of waves, the depth of a whale, the, uh, the comfort of a whirlpool with the occasional downward spiral of a toilet being flushed. <laughs> I mean, an interesting description of marriage. We're, we're talking with Beth Lissick about her book, Helping Me Help Myself. Of the names which are part of your book and of this odyssey to experience the world of self-help, probably the single most familiar name of them all will be Richard Simmons and uh, of Sweatin' to the Oldies fame and so on. And uh, that's one of the most entertaining chapters in the book, certainly, and also one that has plenty of poignancy uh, mixed in there as well. I wonder, first of all, if you could uh, explain to, the, to our listeners what drew you to Richard Simmons in particular? Because certainly he is one in a very crowded field of, of people out there trying to get people in shape. Well, you know, I grew up seeing Richard on TV. And when I was, I knew I wanted to do a health and fitness month. 
And so when I started thinking of who would be the health and fitness guru I would choose, I, there was a moment where I thought of Jack LaLanne, who is still alive at age 93. And my brothers and I used to watch his show on TV uh, before the cartoons would come on. But there was nothing that I could participate with, with Jack. He's not doing anything now that you know, the public can participate in. So I, I, Richard was the first person who came to mind because he really has been around the longest. And um, so I went to his website and saw that he has a fitness cruise that he does every year. And um, as soon as I saw that, the idea of being on a cruise, <laughs> cruise ship with Richard Simmons for a week, I couldn't resist it. And I really did have so much fun on that chapter. And he, out of, out of all the people in the book, was you know, the one I got to spend the most time with and the one who really made himself available to, to everyone who, w- who was there to see him. And that was really interesting, too, to see the, the exchange between the guru and the followers, you know, and, and seeing how much energy Richard gets from these people. You know, not only are they kind of flocking to him and following him, but he really, it's really an exchange of energy. And I, I thought that was very fascinating. And I saw, you know, a, a totally other side to Richard that besides the campy persona we see on TV, I mean, I saw him being incredibly real and very thoughtful and calm and 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 really wonderful. And so that ended up to be a big surprise, definitely. Hmm. I want you to explain kind of an intriguing line here. You said, it's true that from Richard's uh, website, the cruise to lose looks like it could possibly be the most terrifying thing that ever happened to many people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, most people that I've talked to about cruises, I, I don't really, maybe my, my parents maybe are, are a fan of cruises. I, it, the idea of being trapped on a cruise ship, it feels very, the idea of it is very claustrophobic to a lot of people. And, you know, it's a carnival cruise ship, which is sort of the, the, the bottom rung of the cruise ship line, the, 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 the discount cruise ship. And so the, um, the food isn't really that good, and, and you stop in these ports, and you're there for a couple hours. And I mean, we, we really we stopped in Jamaica, and they had pulled out a local man with dreadlocks and a red and yellow and green hat and said, you know, get your picture taken with a Rasta man. And, and this man's standing there, and people are going, what's Rasta? You know, getting their photos taken with him. So it really was... Um, it, it, there was there were ele- a lot of elements to it that were kind of terrifying. Just being for an entire week with with the same people on the ship and kind of stopping into these ports for just a few hours. Right. Also, one thing that made it kind of interesting, and a, and a number of people apparently asked you when they heard about the, your plans to do this, wasn't it going to be strange for you to be on this cruise when you yourself were not seriously overweight at all? Yeah, and, you know, what was interesting to me about that was that people had no problem saying, like, I can't believe you're going to go on a cruise ship with a bunch of fat middle Americans. And I, I, stuff like that just really bothers me. And it's usually people on the coasts, you know, that, that say stuff like that. But I thought, come on, like, everybody on the ship is not going to be gigantically overweight and, and, you know, this stereotypical idea of what, uh, I just, the middle American thing always bothers me too, because, you know, most of my family is from the Midwest. And um, so I, 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 I realized that when I got on the ship that a lot of the people um, that have been on Richard's cruises have lost a substantial amount of weight. So maybe they did used to weigh 300 pounds. And, and, you know, and there definitely are people who are in the process of losing a lot of weight, but there are also the people who have lost 
100, 200 pounds and, um, and are still going on the cruise because they just love Richard so much and what he's done for them. And so, uh, you know, a large amount of the people were um, really overweight and looking for, looking for help with that. But there were also, there were people of every, every shape and size. So it did make me feel a little bit, uh, a little bit better, though I always have been somebody who is naturally, you know, kind of bony, actually. And so I, there were some kind of embarrassing moments, where, uh, uncomfortable moments where people thought I might have had an eating disorder and were trying to suss out exactly why I was on this, on this cruise. But Richard, you know, has said it's for anybody who wants to be healthy. And, um, and so it, it, he, you know, definitely made me feel comfortable. I love the way you described the first time you actually set eyes on him on that cruise. Oh, God. You said, and I then, mean, hmm? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you've ever, you know, seen Richard Simmons locking eyes with you and running toward you across a room, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> you said, actually, it's the voice I hear first, one mm-hmm. flight below us amid the rather pasty, confused mob. He absolutely glows. And you said, he, he, we made eye contact. I see him spot our crews to lose name tags, and then he rushes up the stairs. He's coming right for us. Thank God I pinned the thing on. He bounds straight to Jan, your friend who came with you, wrapping his arms around her and plants a kiss on her cheek, a big, long kiss, an extended kiss from an exaggerated smooch and release, smooch and release, complete with sound effects that go, wah, 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 wah. I mean, it's like we're there. <laughs> it really was. I mean, it really was extraordinary. Extraordinary. I will. I will remember it for the rest of my life because he was so affectionate and and so and he was like that with everyone. And that was what was amazing is that is that I am not the only one. Jan and I were not the only ones who left feeling like, wow, Richard really. He knows who I am. He paid attention to me. We had conversations. You know, he he really. By the end of the cruise, he was exhausted because of how much energy he puts out to these people and you know he hardly sleeps and he knows all their family members names and i mean it, it true that it was it was pretty amazing hmm. one thing that was interesting too is a, a moment when he's kind of striding by your table and you would be a couple of the youngest people there and you know looking a little bit different from a lot of the other folks that are there and as he strolls by he kind of dips his head down to you and your friend and says uh, says something under his breath to you, and you realize there are just those little touches that make the man a genius yeah. in terms of how to, instead of just kind of standing blandly and saying the same generic things to actually every single person, I mean, he has a way of kind of getting inside your head a little bit. It which... really was. He, yeah, exactly. He came, he, you know, he had his little thing that he would, little things he would say to us that, that we knew when he wasn't saying to everybody on that cruise ship and they, they had their own things, whether it was talking about somebody's grandchild or uh, something else, but with us, you know, he kind of sussed out kind of our situation and um, and and really tried to make us laugh in in this you know his kind of the sophisticated humor, which was completely beyond you know the the, the person that I'd seen on TV. One of the strangest moments I think in that chapter is one of the first times that Richard Simmons is 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 actually addressing all of you on the ship, all of his clients for that particular cruise to lose. And uh, after you know, being kind of typical Richard Simmons, cracking all these jokes and so on, it turns very, very serious for, for a few moments as he talks about 
very possibly that this is the last cruise he'll he'll ever do. Yeah, Just tell tell our listeners a little more kind of about that moment and 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 what you think was going on there. Well, God, it's so he he's it was the first morning of our first exercise, the the early morning exercise session because we had two every day. And um, so he, you know, he, yeah, he's making all these jokes, and then he just on a dime, you know, he's very dramatic and and turns very serious and says this that this is going to be. He thinks he just needs to end it here. This is the twenty fifth cruise. It's a good number to go out on, and I think this is the last one. And and the room just goes. Compl- people are, are are no, Richard, you can't, you know, and and and. I mean, terrified almost. The <laughs> you say, I mean, really, like, hey, you can't leave us, Richard. How could you do that? <laughs> you said and the room so, becomes a morgue. <laughs> yes. It, I mean, it, first there was this outpouring, and then it just was like silence. And and he just kept saying, I really, I've just, I've done enough. And, and yeah, it was just silent. And then he said, but if you really work hard this week, and you make me happy, and, you know, and then I'll, we might be able to do another year. And everybody just goes, yes, you know, and then... Uh, but I don't think so, you know, and just silence again. And, and so there, there's definitely this emotional manipulation that is happening where he, and, and I say it later because there, there were number, a number of times that Richard cried when he was talking to us, and, and it, was, it was almost like I didn't feel like he was faking it, but I, 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 put, I wrote in the book that it was almost like he was taking an emotional shortcut, like he wanted us to know that he cared about something or that something was upsetting him. But it was almost like he felt like as a showman or something, we had to see the tears or else we wouldn't, you know, it was almost childlike, you know, Mm -hmm. that we had to see the tears so that we knew he was serious. Though I wouldn't, I don't know, I I give him, you know, cut him a lot of slack because of, uh, you know, what he does for people. But I, I really did feel like, like God, he he he's not afraid to to show how he's feeling, and yet there's something there that was that felt a little bit manipulative, and um and and I you know I saw it the whole time, but for some reason was able to totally forgive him for it, right? Because he just ended up, you know, he's so he's so charming. I think what's really interesting, actually, is you talk about this exchange where he's kind of in a sense almost toying with the audience about I, I don't I think this is it I don't think I can do this again and you know and he's and he doesn't seem to be joking around and certainly the audience doesn't think he's joking around they take him absolutely at his word this is yeah. he's very very serious when he says this and you say I can't believe how easily he has everyone myself included in his palm it's visceral as if he captured the energy we created during the morning stretch and pulled it like taffy with his threat. I mean, it's really interesting to think about somebody with the, that kind of a gift, to have yeah. that kind of a hold over a room full of people, I mean, some of whom are probably very easily manipulated, and others like yourself that probably are not. Yeah, but that exactly. just says, uh, that says something about his gifts. I know it really does, and that's why I, that's why I feel like that chapter was just so special because I I really did, and I think that I'm sure that a lot of these other gurus who maybe I just saw them give one you know lecture at a symposium or something where I didn't get to spend as much time with them, you know I did see that a lot of these people have this this pull over people, and you know I'm sure that given a week with with some of these other people, I would have seen that as well. But it was just it, it was a great glimpse into into kind of that 
um, relationship that that somebody like that has with with people who are following you know their advice and their 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 you know words and all that and and so I I I, I suspect that a lot of the other gurus have that um, power over people as well. Hmm. A couple interesting things about the way the the week unfolded, I think, are just worth touching on. One of them is that one of the sort of strokes of genius is that there are all these opportunities where the I th- I think there's like 225 of you that are on this cruise. Is that right? right? Yeah. That there are all these opportunities for each and every one of you to have your photograph taken with Richard Simmons. Yeah. And you know, first of all, I mean, if if you're if you're interested in in making this a success financially and so on, what a brilliant idea that is. But you were also kind of impressed with how well Richard Simmons made that experience work, and it's also where you really caught a glimpse. You thought of of Richard Simmons in a sense out of the spotlight and being a little more real. Yeah, I mean, when he was talking to us when we were getting our photo taken with him. That was, a, that was the first time that I saw him without the, the campy side and just as if it were you and I just talking. You know, he, my friend had gotten a new tattoo and she just had kind of the outlines of some, some leaves and stuff on her shoulder. And he was like, hey, this is a really nice looking tattoo. What, what colors are you going to get? And, you know, just sort of just having a real conversation with her. And I saw him doing that, you know, with everyone. And um, that that really was the the first glimpse, but the photo thing is very interesting because we had that formal photo taken with him, but then there are also you know these opportunities on these cruise ships where there's roving photographers, so they're taking pictures of you in the exercise class with Richard, and then they post them in it, on the ship later in the day in the gallery, and you can buy them, and people would be buying these photos of themselves from that afternoon, bringing them back and getting them autographed by Richard. And then getting another photo taken while Richard's autographing the photo. Um, <laughs> right. A, a picture, you know, yeah. I say it's like a you know virtual you know Russian nesting doll of super <laughs> fandom because it's just like a picture inside a picture inside a picture, and it, it just goes on and on. I mean, some people were walking out of that out of that cruise with you know twenty photos. I mean, it, it was truly remarkable. Your friend Jan, who has quite the acerbic wit. Uh, remarked at one point, kind of seeing this spectacle of of dozens and dozens and dozens of women standing in line, clutching these photographs of themselves with Richard Simmons, wanting to get it autographed while another picture's taken, as you just described. And your friend Jan shakes her head and says, I swear to God in my whole life, I have never seen so many fat people who were so excited to get their pictures taken. In a sense... <laughs> Yeah, it should be noted that Jan herself considers herself fat, and she is, you know, she's a big, she's a big woman. Right. And she, so she always has that, you know, she always feels like she looks terrible in photos, and, and is always like, oh, God, I don't want to get my picture taken, and, and yeah, and since they're looking at these people who are, you know, her size or bigger, just loving it, and yeah. like, wow, this is, this is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it also sort of speaks to the heart of, of what this experience is like, that in a sense... For at least some of these people that are on this cruise, uh, it's maybe not about exactly how much weight they manage to lose or if this changes the way in which they uh, look at food or incorporate exercise in their right. lives or it's whatever. About them feeling good about oh, yeah. who they are. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, and 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 it's just this sort of celebration and uh, 
there's certainly something to be said for that. Yeah, that is a really good point. That is so. It is so much about that. Richard gives a lot of these people this this affection and this love and attention that they don't get in their daily lives. And and it's you know it's great to see that. And it's great to see people really moved and 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 changed by that and change you know changing the way that they feel about themselves. Mm. By the way, I have to ask you. You know, one of the things that apparently people just love about these cruises, uh, not this cruise particularly, but cruises in general, is that there'll be these gigantic buffets with just every kind of food. Now, I'm trying to square in my head these mountains of food available at at these buffet lines on a cruising to lose expedition. I I I mean, it's absurd. It's absurd. And Richard would say, you know, I'm going to pop out behind a fern and surprise you if you're at the buffet, you know, and, and, but because there is a spa menu that we would eat off, you know, you could order from. But then, yeah, I mean, I did see, you know, my neighbor um, who had clearly gone to bed and set her alarm and woken up for the midnight buffet. I mean, it was, people were doing that all across the cruise ship, except that she was on the Richard Simmons, you know, cruise, so she wasn't supposed to be doing that. But, but, but going to sleep and then setting an alarm to wake up at midnight so that you could go and have food from all over the world, you know, for, for two hours or something like that. So, so that, I mean, it, it seems insane that you would be trying to lose weight in that environment. Fascinating. Well, once you leave Richard Simmons behind, of course, there are uh, all kinds of other things you undertake, and I just want to touch on a couple of them in the, in the minutes that, that, that remain. Okay. I think earlier in our conversation we talked about uh, the month that you spent with sort of special attention on parenting. And I thought it was a very interesting observation you made about halfway through this chapter when you said parenting was the first endeavor I'd undertaken in my life for which I actively sought out advice on how to proceed. My, <laughs> my pride had to be swallowed whole even as I gagged. And you know, it occurred to me that I bet you are not alone in that. That I mean, if somebody considers themselves fairly self-sufficient and independent, if there's anything that tends to break down that mindset, it is the prospect of being a parent and all that <laughs> overwhelms you, especially in the early going. It's so true. I, it's so true because, I, as you said, I always felt uh, uh, thought of myself as very self reliant. And when I had my son, and he, you know, he was a pretty hard baby. And and uh, and then at the time in the um, in the book, he's four years old, and we're having these discipline problems. Not, you know, we don't, we can't even, we'll give him a time out in his room, and he'd just run out of his room. And so we're, we're actually, like, physically putting him back in his room and holding the door <laughs> so he doesn't come out, and we're like, this can't be the right thing to do. How do you, how do, you do this? And, and so I, I also had this kind of specter. You know, a lot of people think, oh, I don't want to grow up to be like my parents, and I, I thought, God, if I could grow up to be like my parents, I would be so happy because they were such wonderful parents and um, are such wonderful parents. And, and, but they were the kind of people who were like, well, what's the big deal? Just say, you know, my mom had three kids in four years, and it was like, what, what? You know, and, and, and so, you know, they never bought any books or anything like that. And so I kind of had this idea that I would be the same way. And, you know, I had to admit to myself that I just, I needed some kind of help and some gui- guidance, you know. So I've said to people that that really is probably the least funny chapter in the book because I am desperately trying to figure out how to, you know, how to control my son and, and you know, in a way that is, you know, makes all of us happy and, and, and works. Mm. And, 
and it was funny because I did find this book called One Two Three Magic. Um, I met this the author, Dr. James Phelan, at actually the same conference where I saw John Gray, and um, and talked to him, and he was wonderful, just like such a you know just a very sweet, um, soft-spoken man, and and. I picked up his book, and it's very simple, and it's just this idea of how to get them to stop obnoxious behavior and how to get them to do things that you want them to do, like get dressed in the morning. And, um, and it, the interesting thing about that one is that we actually thought we were doing the one, two, three magic, which is sort of you count to three, and if they don't do what you want, they, they get a timeout or if they don't stop, you know, what they're doing. And, uh, but he's, he just has this little system. I mean, it really is hilarious how it's, it's very simple, but he said, you know, you have to follow it exactly. And, and we did, and it really worked for a time. And now he's almost six, and we'll still pull it out. You know, we've, we don't have to use it at all as much anymore. But um, if something's really bad, we'll just go one and he'll stop on the one now. Hmm. And so <laughs> so that's it's it, it's funny because Yeah, he knows um, what's coming. It's yeah. interesting. I mean, you you talk us through that that process and the fact that you know, you're supposed to you know, when something's happening, a tantrum or whatever, you say that's one, you say it calmly, you hold your finger up, and then you wait 5 full seconds right. before you say two and and another 5 seconds and uh, explain why that time is important. You you discovered that that made all the difference in the world. Yeah, well, what we would do is, is that we would, between counting one and two, we would, what Phelan describes as really be badgering him, saying, okay, that's one, and if you don't put your toys away, you're not going to have any toys to play with when you, when you get, get out of your room, so you better put those away now. Okay, that's two. I'm serious about that. I'm two, and now I'm going to get to three now. If you don't, you know, we would talk in between it. And the silence really is for their little tiny brains to just process w- what's happening to them. And I think that kids are so smart that that sometimes I forget. You know, he he calls this like the little adult syndrome, where you're you're treating them like they're adults, but clearly, I mean, he's you know four at the time. And so by having that silence, it just gives them time to actually think about the consequences, and that they need that time just as far as how their brain development is working. That you really need to be silent. You need to not put any emotion into it, and you just need to wait it out before you get to the next number, and then you do the same for three, and if they haven't been, you know, done what you want, then they're, they, they take the time out. And, um, and yeah, it was just the, the smallest, you know, kind of a little adjustment, but it, it helped us tremendously. Sure. It really helped us not get all emotional about the about it. Absolutely. Well, and you talk, too, about his advice that even as you take the kid into timeout, and as you take him out of timeout, that also in those moments you should be silent. And you write, this is a huge deviation for us who more or less badger Gus all the way to his room. Uh, <laughs> I always thought of it more like explaining, but it's not. Right. And, you know, and, yeah, and I think a big part of it, too, yeah, is that when they're, when they're done with the timeout, you just don't even mention it. You, don't, you, you just start fresh. And you say, hey, why don't we do a project? And, and so that they're not dreading coming out of their room, and you, you can just kind of, start with something new, and, and, and it, that actually worked, too. They're relieved. They don't, they don't have to relive the stupid lecture about, you know, putting the toys back in the box or whatever, and, and you, it's, you just kind of drop it 
because they know what they did wrong, and, and you don't have to, like, keep going over it. Right. And, you know, who likes that? Nobody. So, so that, that one actually worked very well. It's interesting, though. You, of course, write in this chapter of it working well to the point then where you and your husband sort of mutually decided to kind of relax the reins a little bit and, and allow the household to not be quite so strict and, uh, and really disaster uh, ensues uh, in, in in the wake of that loosening of the reins, and that right. that really points to the heart of what uh, can be so bewildering for parents is uh, this notion of where is that balance in terms of us creating the home we want for ourselves and for our children. Right. Yeah. That that was true. It's because we had been doing this program, and the minute we started to loosen up a little bit on it. He was confused. He was like, what are you doing? Usually you would count me for that, and now you just let me try to get out of, you know, having my hair washed or whatever it is. And usually you would be counting me for that. And so, you know, then he's got to rebel and test and figure that out. And so, you know, it was, it was a little bit of a, a rocky road. We went back to the program. And then eventually we're just kind of over time. And as he matured, too, we were able to, to loosen up on that and yeah, so <laughs> well, that was a funny chapter. I'm sure, as, yeah, as, and as people read that, I'm sure a lot of people will identify with that sort of bucking bronco that is uh, young parenthood. Yeah, God, you know, and I felt I felt a little conflicted at first about detailing this tantrum that he had, which I really just transcribed, you know, as it was happening right after it happened. But um, he, uh, but then I realized that when I read other things that kind of make me feel like, okay, I'm not alone in this. Like that, that was really how I came at kind of to be at peace with writing about my son in that way, because I thought, you know, I, I didn't want to exploit him or his emotions or, you know, and I don't write about him a lot in the book at all, but, but that was the one where I really felt like I had to put that in there and that it was important and could probably, and I've already, you know, gotten emails from people like, oh, thank God you wrote about that, because I felt like you know, that I was the only one who didn't know what to do or had a kid who was acting out like that. And, and so that ended up being, you know, I was conflicted at first and then ended up being glad that I, that I wrote it the way I did. Hmm. Let's finish, if we can, by just talking about the chapter on creativity. And it's so interesting, as we look at what you've done in your life professionally, it's very, very clear that you are a tremendously creative person yourself, and yet you tell us that you'd hardly given creativity itself a single thought. And, uh, and uh, something makes a difference, though, in, in you sort of thinking about it. Yeah. I, um, I, for that month, I chose a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, which is a very popular book. And um, a lot of people had recommended it to me. And I never even, I guess because I'm so, I get so involved in doing a project and, and, or creating a show or I've had bands and made films and, and so I'm just kind of going along doing these things and not really giving much thought as to what's fueling my creativity or how I should be, you know, regarding it in any way. It just seems like it's part of who I am. And when I was reading her book, I really felt like, Oh, she, her approach is so much to coddle this inner artist and to, to treat it very, to treat your creativity as if it is an incredibly special thing, which I agree that it is, but I, I felt like in her approach to it, I, I was, it almost felt in, insulting or, or I can't, it, it's hard to explain because at, at the end of it, I felt like we, we have some basic ideas that are 
similar is, is that I do believe, as she does, that everybody is creative and that everybody starts out creative. And as you go through your life, you know, a lot of that gets chipped away and, you know, you're, you're not as in touch with it as, you know, as when you were a child. But I, I also found out later that she really works with people who are in recovery, either from some kind of emotional abuse or some kind of um, something traumatic or alcohol and drug abuse, and that she's trying to help people who feel like they can't be creative without, you know, drinking or doing drugs mm. or, or that they have been um, at a place in their lives where people have told them that they're worthless and that they don't have good ideas. And, and so she's really trying to, you know, pull people out from this very dark place. And as I discovered that, I felt like it wasn't really fair for me to treat her book as if, it, if, as if I were the target audience, because right. clearly I wasn't, you know. And, and so even though I... I really, I didn't get that much out of the book that was helpful. I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't dismiss it because I just wasn't the right fit for me. Sure, and you um, could, you, and you could imagine it being very helpful for someone else, maybe in that kind of place. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so, so it, you know, and it is very. She does have a very new age approach. I mean, it is talking about you know the your inner artist and and you know you are the special jewel and and these things that I I just felt like wow I I guess you know I I just. I, I just didn't relate to, to that approach, though, you know, at the heart of it, I think that what she's saying is, you know, make a painting, just, you know, write something, and, and her morning pages were actually very interesting part of her program is to get up every morning, and before you even have a conversation or do anything, just write um, three or four pages just stream of conscious, whatever's happening, and um, which is funny because it made me feel like a very uncreative person. My, you know, of just my okay, I've got to get up today and go to the bank. You know, <laughs> and um, and but in the end, I found that it sort of did clear my head of kind of all this extraneous material that was there, and I could right. sort of get on with my day. Yeah, you you wrote that you would walk down into the kitchen in a sense feeling unburdened having mm-hmm. written your morning pages for the day, that it's, it's as though that equipped you to, to greet the day in sort of a, a, a different way, even if you hadn't left behind on your desk upstairs, you know, some sort of masterpiece waiting, of the world, uh, waiting for the world to discover. Um, but it was, ju- it was good for you, a, a cleansing sort of experience. Somehow. Yeah, yeah, and I would definitely recommend that to anyone. I mean, I think that, you know, if you're not a writer, it's great to write. Be- and she recommends it for all, you know, for people who are painters or photographers or actors or whatever to just kind of get get all this stuff out and and nobody else has to read it and and it it was it was a very interesting exercise yeah and I, I guess that points to something which then we is probably applicable to this whole year and to many of these experiences that that even if in the end you find yourself really not able or wanting to wholeheartedly embrace a given approach that almost all of these gave you something, even if uh, maybe just one or two helpful tools uh, for you to take take with you. Yeah, and and that to me is the big takeaway personally for me from, from that year was just that I had, you know, I had spent my whole, you know, adolescent and adult life really thinking like, oh, God, I can't believe that people buy these books that tell them how to live, you know, and then end up reading them and going, oh, well, that's interesting. I never thought about that. And, um, you know, that that was a a big thing for me, just to kind of get over myself about the whole self-help business and books and all that and and just kind of try it on and, and, 
actually walk away with something more than I had before. Hmm. The book, again, is called Helping Me Help Myself, One Skeptic, Ten Self-Help Gurus, and a Year on the Brink of the Comfort Zone. It's published by William Morrow, the author Beth Lissick. Beth Lissick, this is a delightful book and also very thought-provoking, and I think there are all kinds of good reasons to read it, and I uh, I know many people will seek it out, and uh, we wish you the best with your uh, continued writing. Oh, thank you. This was really fun.